0: Church family, if you have your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to find the book of Jeremiah, and I want you to find the 21st chapter. It is a powerful thing to worship with you as I did this morning. It's even more powerful because I think about the stories of people in this room who sang that last song with much sincerity. I know for a fact the young woman who led us just a moment ago have been through a very difficult time over the last Few years and through her personal pain, she led you this morning with a spirit of victory and excellence in a way that honors the Lord. And I love the way that song ends this little phrase, It is well with me. You know, it is well with me is not the declaration that your life is perfect, that you don't have pain, that you're not struggling that you haven't been through some form of suffering. It also means that there are times in our lives of extreme joy, of jubilation, of excitement. The good news about knowing Christ is that though life may be a roller coaster, the foundation upon which we build our life is most certainly not. He does not move. He is not changed. His love never ends. And the way his love was shown to us as we sang theology this morning is through his blood. The application of our blood, which was literally what you said, the blood applied, means that his precious sacrifice renders all my sin powerless to condemn me, which means that if my sin is forgiven and rendered powerless, I can stand before a holy God with no fear of judgment or condemnation, not denying my inadequacies, not denying my weaknesses, not denying my sin, but I can stand before the Lord and say, it is well with me. I hope you can say that this morning. We're beginning a new sermon series, not a new book. Don't get your hopes up. For those of you who are guests of ours, we're walking through the book of Jeremiah. And as is so often the case, I never fail to remind you that in a day and age where everybody has an opinion, I want to go to a church that asks a simple question. What does God say? And to know what God says, we have his word. I've often quipped with you, and I certainly did not invent this quote. If you ever want to hear the audible voice of God. Read your Bible out loud. This is the Word of God and the voice of God. And so we believe the most faithful way to hear the words of God and to align our lives with this one who has made it for us to be well with him is to milk every book of the Bible of all its nutrients. And we've chosen the book of Jeremiah. And we come today, though, with a new sermon series because we get to chapter 21. And I want to preach to you a message simply Entitled Lessons from Lost Leaders. Lessons from Lost. Leaders. Now don't be afraid before you think if I walked into a political sermon, if I walked into a social sermon, if I walked into a sermon where a pastor is going to pick out some world leader or some national leader or some local leader or some sports leader or some leader of some business and and, and just pitch a fit against him, that's certainly not my desire this morning. But I don't have to tell you that we are surrounded by lost leaders. And because of that, we are seeing society suffer from an epidemic of failed leadership. The good news is we're not alone in that. In fact, if you were trying to describe Jeremiah's ministry, you would say he had to prophesy during a time of very poor leadership. In fact, if you do the math, Jeremiah prophesied during the reign of five kings of Judah. And of the five, there was only one who was considered good by God's standard. That was King Josiah. The last four were no good, no good whatsoever. And yet in the midst of poor leadership, Jeremiah was still called to be faithful. And about chapter 21, though it's not crystal clear and clean, about chapter 21 through the next few chapters, we begin to see Jeremiah interact with some of the last kings of Judah. Several years ago, I had the opportunity to travel to the beautiful country of Uganda. One of the things I cannot wait for, I cannot wait for international travel to open up to the degree that we can begin to re and recommission teams all over the world. It is a life-changing experience. I recognize that some of you have limitations with your health or perhaps family obligations, but I would just say this, if at all possible in your walk with Christ, You need to put yourself in a position to go on an international mission trip and go to a place where you can make a difference. And what you'll find is is that you think you're going to make a difference and God will use those people to make a difference in your life. And so a few years back, I went to Uganda where we have uh, several partnerships and I was teaching and training pastors there, incredible young men hungry for the word of God. And I, as I became enamored by this beautiful country, it's called the Pearl of Africa. The food is amazing. Now they love carbs. Love carbs. But the food is amazing. The people are incredibly hospitable. Wonderful place. Of all the continents I've ever visited, Africa is my favorite. But I began reading. This is what I do. In fact, I do this when I watch TV. I don't know if you have this person in your life who, while you're watching a movie, I look up the Wikipedia article on the actors and the actresses. I just love to read. I'm fascinated by people. And so I began to read about Uganda's history. Sadly, you cannot read about Uganda without reading about the plight of a dictator, a wicked man named Idi Amin, who ruled during the time I was born in the 70s. He actually came into power through a coup in 71 and was ousted in 79. And he was called the butcher of Uganda because though he was charismatic and initially had a lot of support, he murdered a great deal of people. He actually exiled to Saudi Arabia, died in 2003. Um, But there was a movie made about him several years ago called The Last King of Scotland. Morris Whitaker played and won an award for his depiction of Idi Amin. And the interesting thing about this movie is the title seems odd. Here is obviously an African man from an African country, and he called himself the last king of Scotland. He did so because he felt like being a leader of Uganda was not enough. And so he gave himself all kinds of titles. Dictators tend to do that. In fact, there he had an uh, army uh, uniform that he wore with all kinds of medals, none of which were actually given to him. He awarded himself all these medals. And one of his favorite titles was to call himself the last king of Scotland. Of course, the choice of the movie title shows the irony of of it. This is a man who did not ultimately help his country and ended in exile, and the lives of many people were ended as well. Jeremiah, in chapter 21, begins to deal with the last king of Judah. And really, something rather ironic unfolds. Look with me in your copy of God's Word in Jeremiah, chapter 21. This is what happens This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord when King Zedekiah, that's the last king of Judah, he'll be the last one to ever reign. Israel's already fallen. Remember, Israel's the north kingdom. Judah's the southern kingdom. Israel falls in the 700s. Judah is going to fall in 586. This is just a few years before that ultimate, ultimate fall. King Zedekiah sent him Peshur. Now, For those of you who were with me last week, uh, unfortunately, this can be confusing at times. This is why you need a study Bible. This is not the same Peshur as in chapter 20. Uh, Different guy, same name. Common in our day, common in their day. Wasn't that many names to go around. When King Zedekiah sent to him Peshur, the son of Micaiah, and Zephaniah, the priest of the son of Messiah, saying, Inquire of the Lord for us, for Nebuchadnezzar. King of Babylon is making war against us. So Zedekiah sends word to Jeremiah. He says, here's what I want you to do. Perhaps the Lord, second phrase, verse 2, will deal with us according to all his wonderful deeds and will make him withdraw from us. Three lessons very quickly this morning. First, the fate of lost leaders. Catch the irony here. Jeremiah has prophesied over five kings. This is the last one. So this is toward the end of Jeremiah's prophetic ministry in Judah. Now, if you've been on this journey with me, and if you haven't, you can go and read back. Sermons are all available online. You know that Jeremiah's message has not wavered. He's not moved. He keeps saying, I, the Lord God, gave you everything you could ever want. I demand your loyalty. Put no other gods before me. And yet Israel embraced all the gods of its area. And Israel abandoned the Lord God. Now God did not smite or condemn Jerusalem. The first day they failed. Years and years and years of warnings and warnings and warnings had been ignored. Now, context is very important here. I don't want you to think you're the first people to be caught in a politically complex world. So there was a deportation of the Babylonians in 597. Now, remember, we're B.C., so the higher the number, the further back. In 597, the Babylonians had conquered so much of the area that they took a great deal of Israelites They took a great deal of Jews back to Babylon. And so Zedekiah was ruling, but he was really ruling underneath Babylonian control. And the foreign policy of Babylon was, if you do what we tell you to do, we won't destroy your city because your city makes us money. We saw this in the first century, didn't we? This is how the Romans ruled the Jews of Jesus' day. They basically said, you can have your God, you can have your synagogues, you can have your temple, as long as you render under Caesar what is Caesar's, we do not care. So this was the tenor of 597. But then King Zedekiah got a little ambitious. He formed an alliance that God prohibited with the Pharaoh of Egypt. This would be Pharaoh Hophra. And with this newfound alliance from the south, he thought, we can kick these Babylonians out of here. So a rebellion started. Well, when King Nebuchadnezzar heard of this, he did what any ruler would do he's going to snuff out a rebellion. So he comes stronger than he's ever came before, and he's marching not to the outskirts, not just to the city. He's headed toward the king's palace, you know, the king's palace that David built, and then Solomon built the temple. This is where he's headed. He's going to breach the walls of the city. Now, Zedekiah realizes he's messed up. And so now he decides, you know, maybe I'll talk to God about this. Here's a great application to remember, something to think about. When things are going great, all voices seem equal. But in suffering, when people are really struggling, they often want and definitely need to hear from God through his or her faithful messengers. Don't throw your hands up in the world we live in. Remember that your walk with the Lord prepares you for the day when people around you have tried every other voice and found no peace, no hope, no sense of solidarity. They need to hear from the Lord. And the way God speaks so often is through his children communicating the truth of his existence with the tool of his word. This is why when I open my Bible, you ought to open yours, whether it be an app or a printed copy. This is why every day you ought to find your way to Scripture in some way, shape, or form. This is why it matters that you know your Bible more than you know your political positions or the ability to counter pundits. We need to know our word. Now, they send word to Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Now, this is something that has happened before. We know that Isaiah dealt with this. Hezekiah sent word to Isaiah. Is there any hope for us? And Isaiah would give a word to the man in charge. Now, the scripture begins to unfold in verse 3 when Jeremiah gives the answer. It is not the answer Zedekiah hoped for. What did Zedekiah ask? Look at the second part of verse 2. Inquire of the Lord for us. Zedekiah says, Jeremiah, you walk with God. Ask God a question. Here's the question. For Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is making war against us. Perhaps the Lord would deal with us according to all his wonderful deeds and will make him withdraw for us, this wicked king who had led people to worship the gods of Baal, all of a sudden bearing testimony. Oh, Jeremiah, maybe, just maybe, our great good God of heaven will work mightily. You ever see that? People that don't give God the time of day until they're up against a wall, and all of a sudden they're testifying to his goodness in hopes that the wink and the nod toward the faithfulness of God will turn him into a quick pro quo solve, problem solver in their life. This is exactly what Zedekiah is doing. Unfortunately, Jeremiah did what he so often does. He does not waver. <laughs> in fact, I think after he gets through saying what he's about to say, is thinking, I shouldn't even sent that email. I shouldn't have texted him. I, I didn't want to hear that. You know how when you ask somebody for the truth and they give it to you and you go, I don't know if hearing the truth was worth the pain. It just put me through of listening to it. Look what the Bible says in verse 3. Then Jeremiah said to them, thus you shall say to Zedekiah, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I will turn back the weapons of war that are in your hands, (laughs) not Nebuchadnezzar's hands, in your hands, and with which you are fighting against the king of Babylon and against the Chaldeans, That's how you say it, by the way. You you want to say Chaldeans, but it's Chaldeans. Chaldeans who are besieging you outside the walls. And I will bring them together from the midst of the city. And I myself will fight against you with outstretched hand and strong arm in anger and fury and in great wrath. (laughs) <laughs> so Zedekiah says, Jeremiah, see if God can help us. Look what Nebuchadnezzar's doing. And by the way, this is the first time Nebuchadnezzar's mentioned by name. The 21st chapter, first time he's mentioned by name, which proves Jeremiah's been telling the truth for 20 chapters. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. Well, guess what? He's here and he's marching on the city. And Zedekiah says, maybe God will deliver us as he so often has done in the past, which is true. And Jeremiah says, n- n- no, no. Not only is God not going to deliver you, Zedekiah, you got bigger problems than Nebuchadnezzar. Your enemy is not Nebuchadnezzar. Your enemy is God. And God said to, to, to Zedekiah through Jeremiah, I will fight against you. And Notice the words just in verse 5. I myself will fight against you with an outstretched hand and strong arm. And then look at the prepositional phrase at the end. In anger and in fury and in great wrath. Those words carry a lot of meaning. The word anger in the Hebrew is related to the same word as nose. You go, what does that mean? Let me ask you a question. You ever had anybody flared their nostrils when they were mad? You know, your mama's nostrils would get big as quarters. Come at you. How does a bull show his anger? He snorts through his nose. Fury in the ancient language is related to hot. And wrath really comes from a root word of bitterness. Now again, your God is not moody. He's not inconsistent in his disposition. God is not a hothead. This is the result of God having warned and warned and warned and warned and then this conceited arrogant king says, "Well, I've tried everything else in the world. I've tried alliances with Egypt. I've tried to worship the other gods." Notice something, I love this. Zedekiah didn't send for the false prophets. Didn't want to hear from them. Nothing they could do for him. False prophets always fall away when the suffering hits the fan. You need to hear from a man or a woman of God when you are hurting, and Zedekiah says, Jeremiah, is there any hope? And Jeremiah says, not for you. There is no hope. God is in the midst of this, and he is using Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar to bring forth justice. This is the fate of lost leaders. When any person in any form of leadership, is given multiple opportunities to turn to the Lord and rejects and rejects and rejects. I don't want to be there when the Lord delivers his judgment. I will line up and sing with you for hours about the love of God. It cannot be exhausted. It ought to be celebrated from the housetops and the rooftops and the treetops. And I would tell you that the love of God is the single thing that changes the hearts of people. But when did we stop preaching about the wrath of God? If you reject the love of God, you endure the wrath of God. And interestingly, not only do we see the fate of lost leaders, we see the grace of tough love. I'm so thankful for verse 8. By the time we get through verse 6, we read things like, and I will strike down the inhabitants of this city, both man and beast. They shall die of great pestilence. Who's going to die? The people and the animals in the city. Sounds like everyone. Sounds like Zedekiah has condemned them all. Not to mention that many of them were complicit in the sins of Israel. Look at verse 7. Afterward declares the Lord... Both man excuse me, afterward declares the Lord, I will give Zedekiah, king of Judah and his servants and the people in this city who survived the pestilence, sword and famine into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon and into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their lives. He shall strike them down with the edge of the sword. He shall not pity them and spare them or have compassion. So Zedekiah, your death sentence has been sealed. You have rejected the will of God and you are the fate of a lost leader. And it sounds like God's goal is to annihilate his people, but that can't be his goal because I got saved by a Jewish man. Jesus made it. Mary and Joseph were living, guess where? In Israel. So we know that God's desire is not to annihilate his people, even though he's bringing discipline. So look what happens in verse 8. A real leader steps up. This is God himself. And to this people you shall say. So he says, Jeremiah, you tell Zedekiah there's no hope for him, but to the people you tell them this. Thus says the Lord, behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. He who stays in the city shall die by the sword, by famine, by pestilence. That's a repeat of verse 5 and verse 6. But he who goes out and surrenders to the Chaldeans who are besieging you shall live. Now, you shall have as your life a prize of war. For I have set my face against this city for harm. It is not for good, declares the Lord. It shall be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall burn it with fire. Now watch this. God said, Zedekiah, I'm done with you. You had your chance. And he says, Jerusalem, you will be destroyed as I promised in the word. But I still love my people. I still love Israel. Though people may attempt to destroy Israel, I still love Israel. Have you been reading your headlines? I still love Israel. And then he looks at the people and he says something fascinating. Now, if I were one of those people, I'm just a nobody. I'm not a King Zedekiah. I'm not a connected high priest. I'm not a public official. I'm just a guy trying to survive. And the city I live in is under siege. What would I want to hear from God? I'd want to hear the same thing Zedekiah wanted to hear. God's going to swoop in and take care of the Babylonians, and things will be back to normal within a few days. That's not what God said. God said, no, I don't change once I decide to judge. And there is no second chance for this city or this king. But I am still going to give you a choice as to whether or not you live or you die. And by the way, that permeates Scripture. When God gave Moses the law, which was built off the Ten Commandments, you know what he said to tell the people in the book of Deuteronomy? I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you, sound familiar, life and death, blessing and curse, Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. So when he was forming the people, their identity there in the wilderness, on their way to the promised land, he says, I'm going to give you two ways to live your life you can rebel against me, you can embrace the world, you can run from me, or you can come to me with all of your weaknesses and and inadequacies, try stacking that one together, and inadequacies, and I will give you life if you will be my people and I will be your God. And so right in the midst of this storm of judgment, God is still showing us something. Though he has passed judgment on Israel and it will fall, Judah specifically, he is going to save a remnant of people. His love and grace, though tough, is real. I'll tell you one of the things I'm concerned about as a father. When did we become allergic to being offended? Now listen. Listen. I think as a believer, a follower of Jesus, anytime someone is offended sinfully, whether it be me being offended by an individual or someone offending another person or some group or some organization, we ought to stand for what is right. You'll see that in the last part of the chapter. We ought to fight for justice. I'm not interested in trying to pretend that all offense is righteous. Let me tell you something some of it is there is a blessing to being offended because there are only two ways to live your life being offended is not always bad we seem to live in a day and age where socially we find anything that offends anybody and we cancel it yet let me ask you a question what kind of person would you be Had your mother not offended your backside when you were a little girl or a little boy? What kind of player would you be had you always played for coaches that never jumped you when you were doing what's wrong and corrected you? I know I wouldn't have been the player I became. What kind of business can you run? If you never point out anything critically that's done wrong and demand that it be corrected i don't have to tell you you saw the danish company lego announced this week in preparation for june which has been declared by some as gay pride month they have now an lbgtq plus sign lego set now the interesting thing about this this is not a sermon about human sexuality and, and uh, but the interesting thing about that is the first thought i had was i didn't know legos were sexual you ever held a lego I don't want to be crass. Nothing going on down there. <laughs> Just a piece of plastic. They're different colors. They're blocks. And by the way, they're for children. They're proud of them, but they're for children. Well, this company, a very progressive company, has come out and, and said they're doing this and, and for inclusion. But, but think about the slogan that they put on it. This is the name of the LBGTQ Plus Lego set. That will be released next month. Everyone is awesome. Everyone is valuable. Everyone is loved by God. Everyone is not awesome. Zedekiah wasn't awesome. Idi means not awesome. Evil dictators that butcher people are not awesome. It's not awesome to advocate for the death of the unborn because they're inconvenient. It's not awesome to attempt to shove new forms of moral relativism into the impressionable minds of children who just want to play with blocks. It's not awesome. Listen to me. There are many times I'm not awesome. Rather, I'm sinful. I'm wrong. I'm angry. I'm lustful. I'm bitter. I'm lazy. And it is those times where the truth of God's Word has to have a collision course with what's not awesome in me because the Lord wants better for me. And by the way, this is not trying to take a prophetic Old Testament truth and and somehow contextualize it in an unbiblical way. What did Jeremiah say? Jeremiah said, God's not done with you. I'm going to give you a choice here's your choice. You can stay and fight and you'll die or go surrender. You won't get to keep your home. Your barns and your houses will be burned. You will not get to stay where you live. Your life's going to change forever, but at least you will live. You, your wife, your children, you'll live. You'll be exported, deported back to a country you've never known, but you will So notice what God does. Mom and dad notice this. God loves and disciplines at the same time. They lost their right to live in Jerusalem by their idolatry. He was not going to negotiate with that. But he loved them anyway. Now think about that in relationship to the understanding of the gospel. Think about it in your copy of God's Word. When you see what he says in verse 8, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. What did Jesus say? There is a redefinition of Jesus that happens in every generation. This is why you need to hold your Bible close to you. I want to go with what Jesus said. Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And by the way, that's not awesome. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. I'm not happy about this. I'm just quoting my Savior. This is what he said. It's difficult to recognize that this can be seen as offensive. What about John 14:6? What did Jesus say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is an extraordinarily offensive statement to many people. Now, how we deliver it should be kind and gracious, thoughtful. We should make sure we understand what he's talking about. But to be honest with you, you, you don't need a Bible college degree to understand it. J- Jesus is talking about himself, he's not talking about his ways. He's saying, I am the way. Why? Remember what I said in the introduction? It is only through the application of his blood that sinners are made righteous. And so he is the only one who has the right to declare that he is the only way. The main rebuke of that from our world filled with lost leaders is that how arrogant and conceited it might be for a group of people to think that they and they alone have the only way. We don't have the way. Jesus is the way. I'm not quoting me. I'm not quoting Billy Graham. I'm not quoting Mother Teresa. I'm not quoting Martin Luther. I'm not quoting Augustine. I'm not quoting Jerome. I'm not quoting church fathers. I'm quoting Jesus. And by the way, it would be extraordinarily arrogant for Jesus to say this if it weren't true. But if it's true, it would be incredibly unloving for him not to say it. And this Therein lies the offensiveness of the gospel. I'll give you just one or two more. John 20, 21 is our verse this year, remember? Jesus said, As the Father has sent me, I even so I am sending you. Well, Jesus was sent to declare truth. Which means as believers, especially in this day and age, we're not angry. I'm not mad. I'm not bitter. I have no axe to grind. I will not back away from truth. Honestly, it's easier for me than it is for you. I hope some of you are here today because you know we as a church will not back away from truth. But what about tomorrow in your business, your classroom? What about in awkward situations with family members who believe differently? Can you articulate lovingly and kindly? The truth? You know what Paul said about Jesus? Paul said these words. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. He's talking about people, Jew or Gentile, that's everybody, who does not believe. But to those who are called, to those who are saved, Jews and Greeks. So everybody, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. There's no middle ground. Jesus. Either you know him and you trust him or or you don't. Now, in that crowd that does not, there are those who are belligerently against him, those who deny his existence, and sadly, there are many who believe they know him, yet the fruit of their life shows no desire to honor him. This is the heart of the gospel. And we see it right here in Jeremiah 21, where God will not negate negate his standards, but he says, there's a way for you to live. And by the way, don't you think it's interesting? What were they asked to do? Surrender. Stop fighting the battles you can't win. And surrender to the God who's big enough to go with you into Babylon. You know, God's not just in Israel. He's in Babylon. And isn't that the message of the gospel? Being saved is not checking a card. You may do that to let a pastor know to call you. Being saved is not praying a prayer. You may do that to declare inwardly to God verbally. Being saved is not being dipped in water. Being saved is not getting 12 quiet times in a row. Being saved is not just attending church. You know that ultimately at the heart of salvation, there has to be a moment of surrender where you say, I'm not going to battle my sin anymore. I can't win. I'm not going to battle my pride and hang on to my problems and try to sort things out myself. And I'm not going to hang on to the things I find most pleasure in. I I surrender. And this is so cool. (laughs) When you surrender, He forgives you of your sin, He gives you strength to trust Him in the battles that you don't understand. And when it comes to your own temptations and tendencies, as he changes your heart, he changes your desire so that you begin to desire what he desires and not what the old you used to desire. Now, that process is a lifelong journey, but it happens when you surrender. I'm so thankful for the grace of tough love. And then finally, the call for true leaders. After he deals with the people, he says these words in verse 11, and I'll close, and to the house of the king of Judah. So now he's talking to the royal line. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of David, thus says the Lord. Execute justice in the morning and deliver the hand of the oppressor, whom, him who has been robbed, Lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of your evil deeds. God's still looking in the midst of a falling city for people to do what is right. A lot of discussion in our world today about justice. Listen, I want you to know the creator of justice is the Lord God of heaven and that he cares deeply for the oppressed, for the exploited. And that we should position ourselves, in as much as it depends on us, to always advocate for anyone who cannot advocate for themselves. This is not the absence of law. This is not the absence of order. This is not the absence of policy. This is the presence of people who desire to be fair, honest, and to love their neighbor. And it's interesting to me that even though this dynasty is about to fall, the house of David is going to crumble It's interesting that he's still saying, I'm looking for people who will execute justice. Now, what's that look like in your life? You may say, Pastor, I hold no political office. I don't even have any political ambitions. Sadly, I wonder how many righteous people still do. But Pastor, I'm not in charge of anything. I work for the man that cuts my paycheck. I'm an employee, not an employer. Pastor, I don't know that I am called to lead anything. Well, first of all, you're to lead a life that honors the Lord. And in as much as it depends on you, you do right, act justly, love mercy, love your neighbor, walk away from conversations that don't honor the Lord, refuse to bite in subtle racism, make sure that you find a way to care for those who cannot care for themselves. This is why I'm so thankful for our foster and adoption care team. It's why I'm so grateful to support Carolina Pregnancy Center and so many other ministries that we support. It's why it matters that we stay engaged with Miracle Heal and other ministries that are willing to help people, but do so with the gospel and not just with handouts. To give people hope and truth as we feed them a warm meal or offer a cup of cold water. Three applications as we dive into this series and I'm done. Number one, make sure you enjoy and submit to the leadership of God. I think sometimes we miss that. It's a joy to follow a God who never fails. I'm so thankful I've not trusted my life to a bell. I'm so grateful that I know the one true living God. Don't deserve to know him, but we do. Enjoy and submit to his leadership. Can you imagine what would happen in a church this size if every one of you began every day with this prayer, Lord, today I want to do what you would have me do. Lead me, Father. Give me strength and wisdom and help me to do your will. And if there's anything in my heart that would get in the way of me discerning your will, help me deal with that so that I can hear your voice from your word and discern your will. Secondly, find faithful leaders and follow them make sure you guard who you listen to simply discern them not by a political party or news channel or favorite app compare their wisdom to the wisdom of the word of god and finally lead in your life others are depending on it this is what i'm going to tell those graduates in a few moments they may say pastor i'm 18 years old I'm not in charge of anything, and you should be grateful for that. (laughs) But you know what? Every one of you, while some of us are called to lead in particular roles and places, and everybody has a different measure of grace. Some of you ooze leadership, and others of you love to roll your sleeve up and just be a doer. Every one of you has a measure of leadership capacity in you. And as we study these lost leaders, use it as a sobering reminder God is looking for men and women who will walk into their life and lead according to his will. Let's pray together.